working our way in evening services as we are through the Ten Commandments. We come tonight to number eight, which is do not steal. Quite a pithy commandment, quite straightforward. I found myself thinking, what is there to preach on, really? We all know it's wrong. I don't think, looking around, most of us do it. So is there a sermon to be preached at all? Stealing has been defined as taking someone else's property without permission or the legal right to do so with no intention of returning it. It does seem pretty self-evidently right. Don't steal. You get the occasional debate about whether stealing can sometimes be justified. Stealing a weapon from an enemy who intends to do you harm as an act of self-defence, that possibly could justify stealing. The US Marines have developed an acronym, strategic transport, strategically transporting equipment to alternate locations. Uh, that's the acronym for steal. Uh, you may try and find moral grounds for stealing if it means you or somebody else is not going to starve to death. And you can pick holes in it here and there and you might find grey areas around the edges, but nevertheless... The general principle of the commandment that it's wrong to take what does not belong to you seems pretty well established. Why do we need the commandment at all, you might ask, when it's so blindingly obvious this is what we must do? Except, of course, that theft is such a common problem. If it wasn't, none of us would need to lock our homes and we wouldn't need to bother about internet security. And we wouldn't be afraid of what this strange person is going to try and con out of us when we pick up the phone and it's someone saying, you know, you've got a problem with your bank. I suspect most of us would say we tried to lead honest lives and we've no intention of breaking the Eighth Commandment. So trying to wonder about, you know, where do we go with this? I, I looked up uh, a website that talks about the, the seven most common things that are stolen, things that people take really without a second thought. And uh, the first thing, top of the list, is pens. Pens and pencils. And I have to say that if you leave a pen on the reception area, next time you go back, it's not going to be there. Now, a pen has minimal intrinsic value. It's just a matter of inconvenience for the next person who wants to use a pen and can't find one. But as the Crown Prosecution Service helpfully points out on the website, theft is theft whether it's a million pounds or a single penny. Uh, in practice, the perceived severity of the offence increases with the value of what's stolen. So Ryan has not been ringing the police station every time a pen disappears from the reception area. The CPS website also says that common sense should guide prosecutors at all levels when deciding the appropriate course of action. They should stand back from the particular facts of the case and look at the alleged offending in the context of everyday life. Applying the letter of the criminal law to the facts of each individual case is, of course, entirely appropriate, but so is looking at the alleged offence in the round and identifying the right disposal in the circumstances. So remember my doctor in Eastbourne getting really uptight because one of his patients was taken to court for stealing a bottle of wine from a supermarket. All that time and expense for stealing a bottle of wine. And yet, it was wrong. It was theft. The deterrent needed to be there. 
So should we be able to leave pens lying around in church? Sure, sure your church of all places is a place where you could leave a pen and think it'll be there when you get back. Though if, if, if John Fisher were preaching this sermon, he would say if we were doing our job as a church, there'd be all sorts of dodgy people around. We wouldn't want to trust them with our pens or anything else, actually, because we should be engaging with people who aren't necessarily trustworthy. Certainly, we have the worst toilet rolls in the world in Brighton Road Baptist Church because when we had high-quality toilet rolls, people seemed to have real problems, extensive diarrhoea or something, they just disappeared <laughs> overnight. And people's health has been much better since we've had poor-quality toilet rolls. They've just stuck around a lot longer. Yeah, toilet rolls. It wasn't on the list of th- things that disappear quickly, but toilet rolls in churches go like hot cakes. It was a standing joke in, in Theological College, London Bible College, that you could walk past a notice board and see a five-pound note pinned to the board. This was found in such and such a place in, in case anybody had dropped it and the owner w- was invited to pick it up. That was the level of honesty. Leave an open bottle of milk in the fridge. That's not going to be there when you come back next time. So why the discrepancy? Well, you, you, people think, does it matter? Five pound note, that's money. Milk in the fridge, that's, that's disposable. Does it matter if I take it? Probably not. But if everybody takes a bit of the bottle of milk, the person who comes back finds there's nothing there when they left. Does it matter? Actually, yes, it does. Even if it appears insignificant to us, to the owner of the pen or the owner of the milk, or the next person who goes to the toilet, yes, it does matter, because it's inconvenient and could be quite drastic, actually, if what they need is no longer there. The next item on the list was was, uh, paraphernalia from hotels. I was sorting out my wardrobe the other day, and I found a wooden hanger with Central Hotel Zurich written on it. I've never been to Zurich. (laughs) I think it must be my dad who brought it home decades ago from one of his business trips or a holiday. So I am in possession of stolen property. What am I to do about it? Does anybody care? Does it matter? But actually the attitude that, yeah, this, is, this stuff at a hotel is there for the taking is, is something we need to think about if we are Christians. The next item is books, magazines. Not in the sense that people go and, and rob water stones or, or tape books out of the library, though I guess that does happen, but books borrowed and not returned. I have to think about that one. CDs, lent, and not given back. Yeah, stuff I've got that I shouldn't have that belongs to somebody else. And, you know, actually it might be quite important to them, and I've just not regarded it as being important enough to bother about Oh, what about the packet of sugar in my bag that I picked up the other day, that I found there the other day, that I'd been picked up on a restaurant table months, if not years ago, because it's quite convenient to have packets of sugar if you're on holiday to, to make your tea or coffee with. And it, it kind of doesn't cost anything, because they don't charge you extra if you put sugar in your tea or coffee. Uh, but that also is on the list, condiments from a restaurant, that just, just disappear, uh, because it's, it's there for the taking, and it's, it's free, so it's not, you know, you're not being charged for it, but actually it costs restaurant chains quite a lot of money uh, to keep replenishing the condiments and the packets of sugar that people keep taking for their own use rather than using on the premises. 
So perhaps the positive corollary of the negative prohibition of stealing is the call to respect other people's property. Other things on the list were not material things. Pushing into a queue. Nipping ahead of someone in a queue. Stealing their place. Yeah, a bit put out about it, it's not the end of the world. Um, I do remember, quite vividly, a queue, tra- queue of traffic uh, coming out of Rittensworth and someone nipped in and stole somebody else's place in the queue and the other person was so alright, they kind of ran out, drove back in, scraped all down the side of the car just to get their place back in the queue. Crazy, crazy behaviour. The sense of, of being offended at losing one place in a line of a queue of traffic was intense for the person who felt that they'd lost that precious few seconds by somebody else pinching their place in the queue. Or, another vehicle example, pinching somebody else's parking space. You can see that the space is there and they're waiting to get into it. But if you're quick, you can get in first. Because they're taking all day and your situation is urgent and anyway, was the space theirs technically in the first place? Surely it's first come, first served. And, And just the attitude that says, well, why not? Why not? If the opportunity's there and and they haven't done it, why not? You can see that kind of attitude in small children. The attitude that if if I want something, I ought to be able to have it. It, It's there. Rob Parsons uh, from Care for the Family talks about property law according to a toddler. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. And if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the parts are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with it and you put it down, it immediately becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. Now, when we talk to toddlers, we talk about the importance of sharing. We don't say it's stealing if you take that person's toy. But I wonder whether behind the practice of theft there lurks just that kind of immature attitude that says, it's mine. If I want it, it's mine. Why, why, why shouldn't I take it? Why can't I have it? Why shouldn't I just have what, what I want? Why has that person got more right to it than I have? And perhaps it boils down then to just plain greed. In which case, theft is just indulging the intense and selfish desire to possess what does not belong to you by taking it. Why not? What's the harm? Or maybe in the case of tax returns, it's the intense and selfish desire not to have to give up what deep down we feel ought to be ours by right, and we don't want to have to let it go. So I expect all of us here would agree that stealing is wrong, but actually that, we might recognise that kind of selfishness a little bit. Just that, well actually, yeah, I, I, I want that, and, and I ought to have it rather than the other person. And uh, it's when that desire is indulged that that perhaps theft becomes something that we contemplate or even engage in. Why shouldn't I? 
What's the harm in it? And the more I reflected on this commandment, the, the more I felt the disconcerting thing about it is the way it has the capacity to take the lid off our hearts. No, I, I would never steal. But actually, deep down inside, sometimes I recognize that, yeah, I want that. Why can't I have it? Why shouldn't I have it? What's the harm in it? I want it more than the other person has. Why not? I'm not saying I go around taking other people's stuff all the time, but I recognize the thoughtlessness, the selfishness, the desire to have, to possess, not to relinquish, that lies behind the act of theft. It may just be a thoughtless act, but as soon as we start to say to ourselves, well, why not? Why shouldn't I? We can betray the presence in our hearts of the seed that in some people grows into a habit of dishonesty. In his confession, St. Augustine recalls how he used to steal pears as a youngster for a laugh. The deed itself was of minor consequence, but he came to agonise over what he helped to be the motivation behind it. He says this, I had a desire to commit robbery, and did so. Compelled to it by neither hunger nor poverty, but through a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse to iniquity. I pilfered something which I already had in sufficient measure and of much better quality. I didn't desire to enjoy what I stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its colour or for its flavour. And late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets, and until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves. We just threw them to the pigs, after barely tasting any of them. And doing this pleased us all the more, because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which you did pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to you what it was seeking there, when I was being gratuitously wicked, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my failing, not for that, which, not that for which I failed, but the failure itself. A depraved soul, falling away from security in you to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed, but shame itself. For Augustine, there were no extenuating circumstances. doesn't plead the grounds of diminished responsibility because he'd been out drinking or that he got carried away by his friends. It was peer pressure of the rowdy company he'd, he'd been with. He did it because he wanted to. He did it for kicks. He did it because it felt like it. He did it because in his heart he despised doing the good and right thing. And with hindsight he looks back with complete and utter dismay, not at what he did, but at the attitude behind it. The crime itself was trivial, but he was appalled at what his behaviour reveals about his state of mind at the time. 
You may feel that Augustine makes far too much of this, and he has an undeniable tendency to beat himself up over his own moral shortcomings. It's not for nothing that he's become known as the father of the introspective conscience of the West. And if Christianity makes you feel guilty, odds are Augustine is to blame. The only other point, it was a thoughtless, stupid, maybe even harmless adolescent prank. Yet when he stops to think about the underlying attitude behind such behaviour, he doesn't like what he sees there at all. The scary thing is that the act of stealing actually is only the practical outworking of our own innate selfishness. Letting it out of the cupboard and doing what comes naturally means we can end up being very nasty, selfish people. So beware of saying, well, why shouldn't I? Why not? What's the harm in it? It doesn't matter. Actually, those are the excuses we invent to justify behaviour that really we shouldn't engage in. That's why we need the law, to tell us that what comes naturally to us as toddlers, if I want it, it's mine, is wrong. And the law has the capacity, to some extent, to hold our naturally selfish behaviour in check, some of the time. Augustine, looking back, recognised that part of the kick of stealing was that it was forbidden, and that was part of the pleasure he got out of it. But the law has the capacity to reveal just how self-centred we can be deep down inside. What the law can't do is change us. That takes grace. And the power of the gospel is that Christ can change our hearts from the inside out. He has the power to liberate us from being the kind of person whose indulgence of their innate selfishness brings misery upon themselves and those around them. Christ died and rose again so that we can die to our selfish way of life. Leave it behind and have a new life of grace with him in the driving seat. Paul says it's like changing your clothes. Take off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Sounds very simple. It's Christ who makes it possible. When we ask God to enable us to die to ourselves and for Christ to live in us, the result is that our innate selfishness begins to be replaced with God's generous heart so that thieves begin to stop stealing go out and get a job instead, doing something useful with their own hands so that they might have something to share with those in need. Our innate selfishness replaced with God's divine grace. That's the gospel. The law, don't steal. Yeah, we know that's wrong. Take the lid off. The law sometimes enables us to recognise just how selfish we can be deep down inside our need of redemption, our need of salvation. That is God's gift to us in Christ. We cannot change ourselves, but we appeal to God to change us. Cry to him for salvation.
And that's a prayer he's always only too pleased to answer because we're precious in his sight. He loves us and gave his son for us.